Okay, if you would, please turn to the book of Ephesians. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask for help to unfold the depths of the riches of Your glory in election in Christ, Your Son. That You give my lips to speak simply and clearly such deep and penetrating truths and that You give us grace to receive that which is true and clear in Your holy Word to the glory of Your name. Amen. These words, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. These words are stunning. And they have caused us to sit here in these verses in order to contemplate their meaning and their implication for our lives. Because as we have seen our experience, this could happen with a child being raised up in a Christian home and in a Christian church. They don't have this stark thing, but they just know I've, I love Jesus. I don't know when that happens. I just know I love Him. I've heard of Him all my life. Some of us have teenage or adult experiences of I've come to faith in Jesus. I believe He's my treasure. I'm forgiven of my sins by His death. I know God raised Him from the dead. And we're saved. We're Christians. That's how it works. Then, sometime down the road, we slow down as we read Ephesians chapter 1. And we take a double take. Huh? He chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predetermined that I would be born again or adopted as a son or his daughter through 
Jesus and we see it, we hear it, and we struggle to believe those words. And then hopefully, through struggle, we come to the place where we see the security and the joy and the Father's love in these words. So yes, we are in the series of the book of Ephesians working our way through. But within this series, we're in the midst of a sub-series because of this passage. And this is the fourth week in dealing with the topic of divine election. I think there will be one more after it. All of them go together. So if anyone's listening four years down the road to this, here are the others. What I want to do this morning then, as we pull up in a helicopter from this text, I want to see the whole forest or canopy of essentially mainly the New Testament to show this is not an isolated couple sentences. This permeates what God wants the church to understand in the New Testament. So, here we go. When we talk about that word He chose, it means the same word of He elected, we mean God's choosing grace that points to this one clear fact. Salvation from sin into eternal glory and the resurrection one day is totally owing to God. It is only one worker, not two. It is not ultimately owing to God and the sinner being saved who cooperate together. It is 100% God mercifully and lovingly saving you. It's not 99.99% God and then I didn't follow the numbers 0.00001% us that got us over the wall into eternal life instead of eternal damnation and there's a reason for it that is clear in the New Testament that God wants us to know it so that no creature no human being will have any ground to boast. But all boasting will be to the glory of God, period. I want you to turn with me. It's going to be important this morning. I want you to see your Bibles. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul unfolds what I had just Said, and let's read slowly. I'll start with 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Got to hear him. They're very wise people. 
People that have more brain power and higher IQs than others. Scribes or scholars. Where's the debater, the great orator of this age who's really good with words? And Paul says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. But therefore what? It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. God's about something. He has a goal. He goes on to explain. For Jews, they demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. God's anger and wrath poured out upon the man Jesus Christ as a substitute. We preach that. (laughs) And guess what? It's a stumbling block to Jews. And it's foolishness to the rest of the world. It is foolishness to Gentiles. Nobody will be saved just because Christ died for sins. And he goes on. But, to those sinners of Jews and Greeks, to those who are called, that is an extremely important word for the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He uses it numerous times. And think about it. Why is it in the passive voice? We... Corinthian believers, we didn't do any calling. We got called by another. And we who are called from among both Jews and Greeks, something happens to every one of them. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Not everybody's called. Everyone who's called this way is saved. The power of God changed them. Christ to them is the power of God in the wisdom of God, Paul says. And now watch, he goes on. For Corinthians, we can do it here, 2,000 years later. Consider your calling. You were walking along and someone said, Come! Came. Consider your calling. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Some, but very few. But instead what? God chose. He's the actor. 
He chose what is foolish in the world for a purpose. In order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. That's me. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why does God purposefully choose in large numbers those kinds? He answers it in the next verse. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why. His choice depends on nothing in us, but only upon His sovereign will. So Paul goes on. And because of Him, if we haven't gotten it already, not because you're smart and you, you worked your way intellectually into faith in Jesus and got saved. No, no. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. That's why you're in Him. Why? So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so the Apostle John, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, he also makes it very clear that new birth creates faith. It doesn't happen the other way around. As so many Christians just kind of say, go ahead and do this thing. Come up here and ask Jesus in your heart and you'll be born again. It's just not biblical. It is a deception. It's not how it works. So he writes in John 1, 12-13, But to all who did receive Him, Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. <coughs> now, he wants to be really clear. So he says, that is, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But they were born of God. And James, in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 18, makes the same point when he just drops in there. Of His, God's fathers, of His own will, He brought us forth, birthed us by the Word of truth. Now some say, brothers and sisters, in Jesus truly born again, many of them say, okay, no, no, yeah, I understand, but see, no, God initiates by the Spirit where the Gospel is being preached. He draws people, tries to woo them and influence people to come to Jesus. God does that merciful act of grace, but He stops short of actually pushing them over the wall into actual faith. He brings them all the way up. So you got Jim and you got Steve listening to Billy Graham. 
and God the Spirit is wooing both. Now they're both in a position where they are somehow able to believe and able to reject. And Jim just goes, Did you see it, Steve? And Steve goes, What are you talking about? And so Jim ultimately had something to boast about. He did the last little movements of muscle contortion to get over the wall. And Jim just kind of lay on the wall where the Holy Spirit brought him and will perish forever. Jim will be saved because he saved himself. That doesn't work, though, biblically. But Paul will say in chapter 2 of Ephesians, very familiar text, listen closely to him, it just what I just gave you, it just doesn't work. He writes for Christians, Ephesians, well, okay, sorry, Asia Minor. For by grace, did no one get that? Okay, go back to the first sermon. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. The this grammatically clearly refers to the grace and the faith. Both are feminine nouns. Therefore, when you have a pronoun or demonstrative pronoun, it would be in the feminine to point back to its antecedent, but it is in the neuter, which is strange, which is a clear way of Paul saying, this whole dynamic, for by grace you've been saved through your faith, and this whole thing, the grace and your faith, are a gift from God, not as a result of works. So that, no one may boast. Or Paul writes in Philippians 1.29. And just, just slow down sometimes and read the New Testament really slowly. And think, why does he say it that way? He says, Philippians, it has been granted to you to believe. Why don't you just say, God granted salvation, and then we can fill it in. Well, okay, okay, because then I appropriated it to myself. And he says, your believing is granted to you. Or that strange passage that Luke gives us in Acts chapter 16, and outside of Philippi, down by the river, there's women praying. Paul and his buddies want to hopefully have a good prayer time. They run into him, they talk, and Paul starts telling them about Jesus. And then Luke just feels, for whatever reason, to just kind of insert. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And she believed. And they baptized her. Why does he say that? Jesus, in His public ministry, proclaims in John 6.44, No one... Okay, how many people is that? Zero human beings. No one can come 
to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws Him. Unless the Father acts. And then later down in chapter 6, John lets us know there are numbers of those who just did not believe. And then that's why Jesus says, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. And there are others who try to say, no, I believe in election, of course. It's a Bible word, all of the New Testament. So yes, I believe in election, but what God's choosing is, is not unconditional. He chooses conditionally. And the condition is His foreknowledge in which God in His omniscience from before He ever created anything could foresee the future of the fall and salvation in His Son Jesus, and then sinners who, in hearing the Gospel, would of their own self-determining will get themselves over that wall and believe, and God sees who they were, and now, in response to that condition met, God chooses them. And so they'll use texts like First. Peter, turn there, chapter 1, where Paul then writes, and I can skip Cappadocia, Asia, but then he says, I'm writing, I'm not Paul, Peter, to the, to the, the church. This is a circular letter that go to all the cities in, the, in all these different provinces. And he says, this is what Peter calls Christians. And think about why, Peter, do you call Christians this? To the chosen... Or to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Left by itself, no other text in the Bible. Oh, okay, because that does because according to is modifying the chosen. And you okay, let's just fill that in with meaning God foresaw who would of their own self determining will bring themselves to faith. But it cannot mean that in this context. Because the very next thing Peter says in chapter 1, verse 3, is that there is no such thing as bringing yourself to faith. According to His great mercy, He, the Father, has caused us to be born again unto a living hope. That living hope is faith. It's the future orientation of what trust is as He goes on to unfold. And it comes out of the result of being born again. Technically, it is the word regenerated. The Father, here's the actor again, the action of the verb, regenerated us unto a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
from the dead. So in that context, foreknowledge that comes right before cannot mean who he foresaw would of their own independent, self-determining will have a change of heart. It doesn't exist in the context. Then, then what is this word, foreknowledge, that, that's used a few times in the New Testament? Well, let me just say that. First, foreknowledge, or even, you know, you got knowledge and then the prefix beforehand, okay, pra in Greek, before knowledge, or just the word knowledge, very often in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when you read, words are only, ultimately, you interpret words by their context. Often the word knowledge means chose. So, what I mean, we read in the Old Testament, only you, Israel, have I known. There's the word to know. Okay. Just in English. You don't need to wrestle with the Hebrew here. In English, what does that mean? Does it mean God's not omniscient? Does it mean He doesn't know of the Greeks? Does it know of India and the Chinese? Of course not. What does he mean? Only, only you I've known. Obviously it means I know you in a very special way. I know every person, everybody, every good, perfectly in my omniscience. But my knowing is not just a cognizance about you. I know you because I chose you. It's a choosing of you. You are my chosen people. That's what he means by know there. Or, when the Scripture says, Abraham, and this is how most English translations translate it, Abraham, I have chosen. I've chosen you, Abraham. Well, the actual Hebrew word is the word to know. Abraham, I've known you. But it doesn't mean anything other than I elected you. I came to you. I said, Abraham, do what I tell you to do. You're my man. That's what it means. So when you come to the New Testament and Paul writes in Romans 11:2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Talking about Israel. What do you mean, foreknew? What, what does that mean? Other than those that He beforehand had chosen. His chosen people. But with the word to know. With the word for, beforehand, in front of it. He foreknew them. So, when Peter writes, to the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, he means that God determined beforehand to know you Christians in this particular way. All of you believers throughout these provinces, you're the chosen according to His foreknowing his predetermining to know you savingly with His mercy. To pour it out upon you as He will go on to say, God, in His mercy caused you to be born again.
unto a living hope. Thus you are clearly, manifestly, the chosen. And so in our passage in Ephesians, Paul writes, Christians, He chose us in Christ, to be in Christ, before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined, predetermined for us to be adopted, born again, as sons through Jesus Christ. He did this according to the purpose of His will unto the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in Jesus the Beloved. And in verse 11, And in Him, Christian, we have obtained an inheritance that the Gospel gives us because we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. So listen to how now Paul says this in Romans 8, if you would. (coughs) Turn there. In one of the most beloved verses in the Bible throughout the century for many of us, and the reason it's really beloved is because of what comes after it, which explains why it's true. Start with verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, love Him, for them all things work together for good. Now notice why Paul's language here. That is, for those who are called. Again, passive. Someone else is doing the calling. For those who are called according to His Paul has this clear doctrine of God's sovereign call. And he says, is that you? The evidence is you love God. The evidence is you trust in Christ. You believe that God raised Him from the dead. He is your treasure. And he says, oh believer, all things are working together for your ultimate good throughout eternity future. You can trust it. Okay, Paul, I need more than that. What do you mean? And then, with verse 29 through 30, the next two verses. You see, if you build a building and just kind of like dig down about six inches and okay, got, put some boards down there and start to construct a big old huge building like Romans 8.28... Just a little bit of wind, a little bit of earth movement, it's going to come crashing down. You go downtown and you see those big, huge buildings. They go down stories underground. That's what verses 29 and 30 are. And so he says... That's what the word for means in verse 29. The reason you can trust that God is causing all things to work together for you who are called according to His purpose is because for 
those whom He foreknew. He chose before He ever created. He chose. He knew you in a very intimate, special, and saving way. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. For what? To be conformed to the image of His Son in order that His Son Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, So watch, He goes. So if you don't get it yet, Paul says, here's how it works. In those whom He predestined, He also called. How many of the predestined are called? Does Paul mean 50% of them? Just from a clear reading, think about it. He means all of them are called. Okay. Those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, which we know is all the predestined, He also justified. How many of the called did He justify? Meaning, forgive all their sins and set them right with God judicially that their sins have been wiped away forever and they stand righteous. How many of the called? It doesn't make sense any other way than understand Paul means all of them. And Paul's already made it clear in Romans that the only persons who are justified, this is what he spent chapters unfolding earlier in Romans, are those who come to saving faith. We are justified by our faith. I'm alive. I believe in Jesus. Okay, he didn't use the word here. So, you must, reading the whole book of Romans, understand in its context, Paul is saying, every person who is called comes to faith. Because every one of them is justified. That call... Therefore, by definition, must actually create what it's calling for. When the evangelist calls, whosoever will come and you will be saved in Jesus, they don't all come. That's a different kind of call. It's an appropriate call. It's a general call. It's not this call. Because when one is called this way by God in hearing of the Gospel, Every one of them come to faith. And because is that you? Is it you? Then those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. So when you look at my dead mother or grandmother this last week, that's what is a resurrection. Jesus is the only human being who's ever been raised. Yet. And He will come back. And it is sure 
because of what He's just said here. See, what we just read, read here in Romans 8 is radically God-centered. It is radically about the glory of God from eternity past to eternity future. And the theology of God's foreknowing, His choosing, His predestining, and His calling is not peripheral in the New Testament. It's so permeated Matthew and Luke and Peter and James and Paul. That, that when there's, for instance, we just take Paul, when he's just writing to Timothy a short personal letter, this stuff is just in his bloodstream. Just as evangelical Christians today, the word born again and love Jesus, good words, and I believe in them, okay? But they're just in the bloodstream. This is in the bloodstream of the New Testament of the Apostles. So in 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul's writing to Timothy and he, just, he says, the Father who saved us and, here he goes again, called us. Why do you keep putting us in the passive? He's got a reason. He called me. And He called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus. Just stop there, Paul. And He can't. He gave it to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Oh, He wants us to get it. He writes to the church of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5. And this is a brand new church. This is within six months of the Gospel coming to them. And he's up in Greece and he writes them because he got kicked out of town, right? So, for we know, brothers, who are loved, you're loved by God. We know that He has... Now again, why does Paul have this language? We know that He has chosen you. How do you know, Paul? Because we watch the evidence. That's his argument. We know that He's chosen you because our Gospel came to you not only in Word, we preached it, but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit that is in your hearts with full conviction. You believe! That's the evidence. You've been chosen. Or in 2 Thessalonians, he writes in 2.13, But we ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Why, Paul? Because God chose you as the firstfruits. He chose you for what? Follow it. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit in belief in the truth. Now, I want, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10 and I want to listen to the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus has a worldview. Paul has a worldview. 
And their worldview is that human beings are not the most glorious, beautiful center of all existence. But God is. And that's why what we're going to read here, the Lord Jesus Christ, before the cross, in His humanity, joyfully exalts in the Holy Trinity's sovereign joy of unconditional election. Start with verse 21, Luke 10. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and He said, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. And instead, You have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or, no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. Jesus is the source of revelation. He said it because only God, the Son, knows God the Father. This is the divine Trinitarian perfect unity of intimacy in knowing. And God created. And the human being created in the image of God with the ability of an intellect and reason and a will to like or dislike, approve or disapprove were made to know God. To enjoy God. But something tragic happened. It's called sin. And the human race was plunged into a dark sin Nature at the core of our being. And every one of us born into this world were born as children of God's just wrath because we were absolutely in a place of darkened heart toward God where we could not truly know who He was, which would be to appropriately enjoy who He is. And that's the state. And that's why we look at death this last week. 
And as Sergio preached so wonderfully last week, it is the great enemy that the Lord Jesus came to destroy. No one can know God. No one can be on a good term with God. No one can actually enjoy God appropriately except for what we just read from Jesus' own lips. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father to. We're meant to feel our utter dependence on God to reveal His salvation to us. No matter how high a person's IQ is, no matter how smart, and there are smart people, most people basically smart, there's some really smart people in the world in particular areas. No matter how wise or smart any of us may be, none of us can reason ourselves to saving faith. Saving faith involves reason. Absolutely. Saving faith is not contrary to reason. But no one can reason themselves to saving faith. Because the problem is not merely an intellectual problem. It is ultimately a heart issue. And our hearts, by our very nature, are blind. They are dead. Listen to how Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person... This is all of us before we're born again. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to Him. And He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul is saying, if you take a blind woman... And you take her down to the beach and say, watch the sunset. And she, everything is totally dark, has never seen. She can't see because the organs in her physicality to let light in and hit the brain and perceive images doesn't work. You can't see. Paul says, spiritually, that's the state of all of us sinners naturally. Sinners cannot hear the Gospel and say, it's beautiful! I want that! Unless Jesus chooses to 
to reveal the Father through it to them. They cannot, in other words, grasp that is the greatest treasure in the world. It objectively is. Reason could tell you that it is. But your heart doesn't want it. Not until Jesus chooses to give eternal life to the person. I want you to turn to John 17 for a moment. And listen to Jesus in His high priestly prayer. Starting with verse 2 and 3. John 17. He prays, Father, the hour has come. It's going to be crucified. The hour has come. Glorify Your Son so that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh. Authority for what? This is Jesus's. These are Jesus' words. Authority to give eternal life to all who will of their own self-determining human will bring themselves to faith. To give eternal life to all whom You, Father, have given to Me. You chose them, and I will grant them eternal life. Now listen to Him. And this is eternal life, that they may, oh, huge word, they may know You, know You, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. He just said it again. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Father, You gave me authority to give eternal life which is knowing You to the ones You have said, Here, Son, these are mine. And then He goes and gives it. Without such spiritual life changing our human hearts, we can no more embrace the Gospel savingly. We can no more hug Jesus metaphorically with our hearts as our Savior than my mother two weeks ago when I can see her pupil as we sat in the living room with a corpse could respond to anything that I would say. Till Jesus raises the corpse of our dead heart by new birth to see. Do you believe in Jesus in here? Is He your Savior? In your brokenness and your sin which you know you're riddled with, is He your treasure? Do you know the Father? 
has Jesus chosen to reveal Him to you? I hope you all in here will be able to say yes. And so, that if you say yes, listen to Paul, because he wants to say, I want to tell you why that is. How that happened to you in Ephesians 2. Starting with verse 1. And you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of God's wrath, like the rest of the human race. Great word now. But God acted, not you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Here here it is. But God, now He connects it. But God what? He made, He acted, made us alive together with Christ. And thus he parenthetically says, he says, Oh, church, I hope you get it. By grace, you have been saved. Have you ever thought about why 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 is not you? Talking to Christians. I believe in Jesus. Why is it that verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, is not you? In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What do you see? Why do you see? Was Satan uninterested in you? And fell asleep? And that's why you saw? He goes on to say to you Christians, two verses later, this is what broke the power of your blindness that Satan was using. For God, verse 6, for God who said in the creation of the world, light shall shine out of darkness. And then He created what He called for. He's the same God who has shone or shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus' words there would make absolutely no sense if He revealed the Father to everybody. But as not only there, but the rest of the Scriptures maintain, God chooses certain individuals throughout human history. Many, 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 many vessels of mercy. And He reveals Himself savingly to them. And He lets others continue on in their spiritual darkness. God chose one day Abraham. Didn't have a contest to see who would run the fastest. Okay, I'll pick you based upon what you do. He just chose Abraham. He didn't choose his father, Terah, or ten thousands of other men. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. And in Romans chapter 9, I want you to turn there. In Romans 9, Paul says, what we see in God choosing Jacob and not Esau was very purposeful. And here's Paul's words. He did it in order to placard. His purpose was to show that His choice of election might remain, might stand, might be clear. Now, the natural cry, when I say natural, I mean the way Paul meant it. We're all by nature in our sin and we're radically human-centered. We are radically God-denying. And our natural sinful cry, not God-centered cry, is that is unfair. It's unfair because He chooses some to be saved. No one has a problem with that. The problem is, well, if you choose some, you've got to choose them all. And we say unfair. But Scripture's clear. God is not obligated to show mercy. He is obligated to show justice. Because He is just. But not mercy. And if God in His eternal, infinite wisdom knew it was the best of all possible worlds, that it would be a world in where there's a fall and where the second person of the Trinity would become one of them in order to redeem by upholding the glory of God forever in His death and His resurrection. And therefore He chose to save many, but not all. He has done nobody an injustice. Unfairness doesn't even come into the equation because God says, I show mercy. I'm going to read slowly, starting with verse 10 of Romans 9. So Paul writes, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet 
born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who... There it is again. Because of Him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul's answer is this. No. By no means. For he says to Moses, Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I, God, have compassion. And then Paul concludes from that. So then, it depends, ultimately, it depends not on human will or work or exertion to get yourself over that wall, but it depends on God who has mercy. And so then, God has mercy on whomever He wills. And He hardens whomever He wills. And then at a a much even deeper level, people object to what we just read by saying it's not fair for God to create some people whom He knew would sin and be eternally condemned and He knew that He would not show mercy on them and save them. Doesn't That's not fair. And Paul knew that that was the natural objection to what he is writing. And so he responds to that in verse 19. You will say to me, Paul, well, Paul, according to your theology, why does God still find fault? How could I be guilty then if God is that sovereign? For according to you, Paul, who can resist God's will? You're saying God is over everything. So there's a sense in which everything is God's will. How can I resist His will, Paul? And and that's exactly the heart of the unfairness objection that is around today. If each person's ultimate destiny is determined by God, ultimately is really important, and it's not ultimately determined by the person himself. I will come back next week. We'll talk about the human will. And we do have a human will, which is free to choose whatever it wants at any given moment, which therefore makes us accountable. But if God is ultimately, according to Paul, 
over who will be saved and not, or not. If He's behind the human choices that we make, then how can that be fair? And Paul responds to it. But his response is not one that appeals to our sinful, man-centered worldview. Pride. He just simply calls on God's rights as the sovereign, eternal One who is Creator. Pick it up again in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Watch your attitude, he says. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, because He desired to show His wrath and to make known His power, what if He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory on vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us Christians whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentile. That's his answer. So when we read these words, we're confronted with a decision whether to accept what God says through Paul here, throughout all the Old and New Testament, or not accept. But this reality that God has so chosen to reveal to us about His sovereign choice, it reaches to the depths of our understanding of who we really are. Of ourselves, of our sin. It reaches to the depths of our relationship to God our Father as our Creator. And we're the creature. And it reaches to the depths of understanding Jesus as our Savior. Who says, All things have been handed over to Me by the Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. See, this is what the Lord Jesus meant when the Jews were demanding in John 10, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. 
And Jesus answered this way. I told you. And it's true today. People say this all the time. Show me proof! You've been told. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in My Father's name bear witness about Me. Hear this line carefully. But you do not believe because you are not part of My flock. Half of you probably read that wrong. You don't even know it. He did not say, you're not part of My flock because you don't believe. Not what He said. He said you don't believe because you're not part of My flock. There are so many people that are part of Jesus' flock from eternity past whom He foreknew before the foundation of the world and chose. They haven't even been born yet. They will come to Him. The Father has given them to Him. They are part of His flock. And that's why they will believe. You do not believe because you are not part of My flock. My sheep hear My voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. And so no wonder at the beginning of that passage in Luke 10, Jesus rejoiced. No wonder he told his disciples, oh, demons are so. No, no, rejoice that your names have sovereignly been written in heaven. You see, we who are believers today, who are all dying and wearing out, and there's a judgment day coming, and those of us who have this living hope, we believe not because we're good, not because we're smart or smarter than another. Not because we're more open or more humble. But because Jesus, our Savior, saved us. Opened our eyes. Can we rejoice with Jesus in the truth of unconditional election? Right after Jesus said to His disciples, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The next thing the text says is, then turning to His disciples, He said privately, Oh, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes to us, he chose us to be in Christ. And He did this before 
the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. What amazing grace. Oh, in a few minutes we're going to sing amazing grace. We went down to the sunset as blind people. And there was nothing we could do to see the sunset. I once was blind. But someone else did something. And now I see what a Savior who saved a wretch like me. Oh, Father, may we come to You now. May we come to You in our daily lives more intimately, more desperately, more dependently upon You as our Creator and our sovereign lover of our souls through Your Son, Jesus. Work, O oh mightily, Father. Amen.